Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. It's great to see you and be with you today. I'm so excited to learn with you and think with you and make sense of our world together. My presentation will be on a slightly shorter side today to enable more conversation about this very important debate. As you know, our notion here is that the traditionalist Jews got it wrong by saying Judaism is, is, is primarily about Jewish law. And the liberal Jews got it wrong by saying Judaism is primarily about Jewish values. Both sides are wrong. They, they argue for absolutes. Our argument has been that Judaism in its finest moment is about dialectical tensions. It's about debates. No value is absolute. No law is absolute. Everything is in tension with each other. That's the complexity and the beauty of our tradition in that we can explore the fullness of, of life and um, of our values in relationship to one another. Today is about struggle versus peace. Peace is a value, but it's not absolute. And struggle is a value, but of course it's not absolute. So how will we explore the tension between calm and tension? Um, and so we're gonna start with a poll. Let's start with a poll. This poll might, might lead us to a, a relatively obvious conclusion, but it's only two questions instead of our typical four. A more central goal in life is living in happiness, peace and harmony, or struggling to bring repair and search for truth. Okay, I know um, it's hard to choose such a binary one over the other, but if you had to choose of a more central goal in life, is it happiness, peace and harmony, or is it struggling to bring repair and search for truth? Let's give you just another moment to cast your vote. Let's see our poll results. Okay, very interesting. One third of people here, 33%, say living in happiness, peace, and harmony. That's our goal. The other two-thirds, 67%, say struggling to bring repair and search for truth. Okay, so we are going to explore this together. Because friends, on the one hand, our tradition emphasizes over and over the value of inner shalom, of peace. On the other hand, our tradition emphasizes again and again the value of struggle. So what is it? Do we want calm or do we want tension? Another way to frame this great debate is the context of pleasure versus asceticism. For many schools of philosophy and religion, the goal is asceticism, the denial of pleasure. We are in a battle with our temptations and we engage in the negation of evil desires. It's a form of counter-naturalism, arguing that we are naturally flawed. The world is not naturally good, according to this school of thought, and the human body has desires that must be overcome. 
We should exist with some level of guilt and shame for what we are and for how we behave. Nietzsche dis dis disagreed with this approach and famously argued that we should affirm all of our existence, including all that is necessary about us as individuals. We should love fate, he said. He argued that when we are creating our system of meaning, that we should not feel trapped by the systems that have been passed down to us. He offers us the paradox. We can fight evil, but also affirm it. He is arguing against being in favor of becoming, against a fixed mindset in support of a will to power. He wants to increase our responsibility for making meaning of our lives rather than see us submit to what others tell us our meaning must be. Struggle is a necessary part of life and it is beautiful and we should reaffirm struggle positively rather than have some negative war against the self and against what is necessary. So struggle may sound attractive until of course it is real. It's difficult to persevere struggles for all of us, but what's the alternative to live in a false reality? Would you, it's a good philosophical uh, thought experiment. Would you strap yourself to a machine and spend your whole life lying on a table living in an illusion of a very pleasurable life if you could? Would you choose to live on the table? Or would you rather have a less pleasurable life, but your life be real, where you could go through the experiences firsthand? Of course, if one was extremely sick or in prison for life, you can imagine why they would choose the first option, to live in a virtual reality. But the fact that almost all of us would say yes to option two is proof that we are seeking more than just pleasure in life. Plato famously said, better to be a sad Socrates than a happy pig. Is suffering ultimately good? What do you think friends? Is suffering ultimately good? Hedonism means doing everything possible to avoid pain and maximize pleasure. Certainly life is about more than pleasure, even while it is important. And it, in addition to pleasure, people also pursue meaning, purpose, morality, and happiness, which of course includes much more than pleasure. Humans are complex, all of us are complex. We can view motivational pluralism in two ways. First, that different people are motivated differently. And secondly, that each individual is motivated by multiple motives. We can embrace both physical pleasure and existential struggle, work and rest, tension and calm. Every year, in fact, every day probably, a new book emerges that tries to explain what humans fundamentally are. It says humans really want X, humans really desire Y, and we're all the same. We're, because we're genetically the same, we ultimately are the same, whether it's Freud or it's a geneticist. But actually, in motiva motivational pluralism, we see not only is every individual different, but we can have multiple motives at once. We, mo we may show up at our job because we want to get paid, but we may also show up at our job because we want to fulfill the mission of that job and because we find value in the work and we appreciate our colleagues, right? There could be many motives for why we do what we do. But struggle should raise the moral bar, not lower it. 
one of the great plagues within some religious camps today is that if you say, this is a real struggle and we have to live in tension, that virtually anything can become morally justifiable because we called it attention. We therefore, for example, can't help the aguna, a woman chained to a marriage she doesn't want, but we can cry with her. We can't do anything for the gay person at risk, but be pained that we must marginalize them further. We can't say anything quote unquote political, but rather sit forlorn in isolation with our ideological purity in the tension of not fitting into society. But the goal of all religious and moral life is not merely to struggle as an end, but rather to struggle as a means to gain deeper moral clarity. And not every moral choice is an akedah, where we must faithfully and fearfully bind our children upon the altar. Some Soloveitchikin, some Soloveitchik or Kierkegaardian moment of the teleological suspension of the ethical. Struggle is deeply valuable in intellectual and spiritual life and necessary for one's integrity. But the ultimate goal must be moral clarity and moral leadership. We must engage in responsible interpretation guided by cherished Jewish values that balance often competing interests of justice, equity, compassion, legal continuity, human dignity, sanctifying God's name, etc. It's true, we may find value in moving away from what some of our friends, less committed to tradition, experience as no struggle at all, since all of Judaism and personal ethics can be viewed as virtually synonymous. On the other hand of the religious spectrum, some of our dear friends don't feel tension since they can't just fully and almost, since they can just fully and almost blindly submit to Dat Torah, the judgment of their religious authorities, and silence their own autonomy and agency, critical moral thinking, and even remove the guilt of imperfect decision-making. To be sure, I want to acknowledge that there is, of course, great diversity within both of those camps, the religious fundamentalist camp and the, and the radical secular camp. And I respect the integrity of their various approaches, the secularist and the fundamentalist. But indeed for me, there is real virtue to living in a tension between Torah and conscience, law and morality, religious law and natural morality. I believe there's a greater value in making the struggle so real and actualizing the holy opportunities that we move from existential paralysis to moral responsibility. I wonder if we can still attract folks interested in that approach to this enterprise anymore, or if too much damage has been done. Where you are out if you don't conform in what is becoming a fear-based culture, where passive crying is constantly chosen over active, humble, and courageous leadership. So friends, this is a question of Purim, because you know Purim's coming up in just two months, uh, maybe less now actually. Will we just get drunk and rehash the old narrative and old tensions over and over as if we still live in the ideal of the past, be it 1880 Poland or 1930 Paris or 1970 Washington Heights or 1985 Alon or the great days of 2012 Scottsdale, Arizona? <laughs> Will we see the palace that we stand within today where we're called to respond or will we transport ourselves back to an imaginary realm that is so intellectually 
critical in the minutia that no room is left for any contemporary moral reasoning and leadership. Friends, the Torah understands that humans are valuable and thus tries to establish guidelines for the utmost purity. The Torah is concerned with our everyday moral behavior due to the dual nature of our service to other people and to God through divine mandate and earthly obligation. The Nazarite takes three strict prohibitions upon himself around drinking wine, cutting his hair, and most essentially becoming ritually impure. The Nazarite in his singularly stark representation of an uncontaminated faith presents a paradox. Judaism shuns asceticism, but the Nazarite must abide by a highly regimented code that restricts pleasure, thereby taking on an aspect of asceticism. And even more so, such an individual is considered both holy unto God for his spiritual commitment, yet is also commanded to bring a sin offering after his season of asceticism. Some suggest that this action is due to the sin of denying himself the pleasures of this world. How do we reconcile the fascinating contradictions of the Nazarite? For if the Torah intends for us to reject asceticism, yet gives precious space to describing the obligation of an ascetic, there must be a deeper meaning to the text here. And of course there is, though it does delve into ascetic, excuse me, esoteric territory. The Talmudic rabbis teach that one who embraces a path of asceticism and denies themselves the pleasures of this world is sinning. What does it say here? Rabbi Eliezer HaKapar ben Rebbe said, why does the Torah state and make atonement for him? For he sinned against the soul. Against what soul did the Nazarite sin? It can only be because he denied himself wine. If then this man who did no more than deny himself wine is termed a sinner, how much more so is it true for one who is ascetic in all things? Ignoring a world where we are meant to enjoy a goes against the values inherent in creation. Why would God create a world if God's creations are not meant to enjoy in its splendor? Consequently, that rabbis teach that we are accountable to God if we do not enjoy the pleasures of this world. Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch pithily suggests that we are accountable to God for the permitted pleasures of this world. We do not enjoy and will even be asked at the gates of heaven, have you seen my Alps? Now it goes without saying that there is significant moral value in curbing our appetites and not pursuing every pleasure we dream of. The biblical passage of the Nazarite in this sense is a subtle warning against extremism. We must be measured in every aspect of our lives from what we eat to how we work to how we conduct ourselves in sexual matters and far beyond. And to be sure the Torah imposes numerous restrictions upon food consumption, sexual conduct, conduct, and the tasks we may perform on Shabbat, among many others. Further, it doesn't hurt to take on a personal stringency based upon a religious and moral commitment. The story of the Nazarite reminds us that we should never reject wholeheartedly what the world has to offer, but at the same time, we shouldn't succumb to every excessive opportunity. The prevailing Jewish orientation towards life 
is to embrace an ideology that is both life-affirming and pleasure-affirming. We are not meant to retreat from the affairs of the world, nor are we to take unrestricted advantage of every delight that exists. Moderation of life's pleasures is critical, though we need to not go to the lengths of the Nazarite to avoid temptation, to balance joy in life with healthy measures of holiness. And in this space, we truly experience wondrous opportunities for all reverence and renewal. Friends, to conclude, I believe we should indeed embrace struggle, but also enjoy life. We should embrace pleasure, but also have limits. We should take on challenges, but also embrace inner peace. After all, Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, concludes in one of his most famous Mishlei proverbs with the words, its ways are ways of pleasantness and all its paths are peace. The Rambam, Maimonides says, the Torah was only given in the world to enhance mercy, kindness, and peace in the world. He was likely referring to outer peace, but certainly the value is relevant to our discussion of inner peace as well. So friends, is life about struggle or is it about peace? Is it about calm or about tension? If, if pushed to choose, one third of us here say it's about calm and happiness and peace. And if pushed to choose, two thirds of us here say it's about the tension and the struggle. But of course we all live with both and we grapple each day to find that balance. So friends, I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you. I've concluded early and let's start with you, Michael. I think that's a false dichotomy. Well, I think the thing we need to think about is, is um, <clears throat> what is our belief system? How do we see life? What do we view? Because in different situations, there's a time for struggle. There's a time for to um, cherish and, and, and experience the, the positives in life. And I think though that each of us has a different place on that spectrum where we are, but we have to understand when struggle and the degree of struggle is the appropriate response and when it's not. To me, so that's the question is, are we secure in our system of faith and our system of belief? And I think from there, the question of struggle versus not can, can be relevant. Great, Michael, thank you so much for that. And I think that's a great, a great point. And I think that for some of us, it's easy to resolve. This is a false dichotomy. You know, we've already worked through this. Struggle has this role in my life and peace and harmony has this role in my life. And I might call it work time or vacation time. I might call it this dimension of my Jewish experience and not this dimension. And for others of us, it's not intentional. Struggle is thrust upon us. I don't, I don't have the privilege to choose struggle, right? Sickness is thrust upon me, right? or poverty is thrust upon me, right? Or ver dimensions of hate is thrust upon me. I don't, with my privilege, choose struggle as some existential meaningful activity. It is something I naturally exist within regardless of choice. And so there, who in such a situation would choose more struggle? They're craving, they're craving the peace. Or someone who's in mourning of a lost loved one, you know, is seeking, is seeking the peace ultimately, seeking the healing that comes with it. So in some stages of our life, we all we wanna do is escape the struggle because it's almost paralyzing. In other stages of our life, 
we're so comfortable that we're looking for challenge, right? We're so comfortable at times of our life that challenge feels almost romanticized, right? I'm so financially comfortable. My health is comfortable. My lifestyle is healthable. That struggle is attractive because I want to be in something that kind of shakes me a little out of my comfort zone. And what do we do if we're neither in either? We're neither in, a, in an existence that is purely struggle oriented, nor are we in an existence that is purely comfortable. And we live in that tension. How do we then affirm? And here, friends, I think, is the, the role of empathy. Because if we only view life through the prism of self, then we can look at where is my struggle? Where is my joy? But once we live in the realm of empathy, we say, how much of someone else's struggle do I make my own? If you have a life partner, there's no other option. If your life partner is sick and you have any compassion, you're in that sickness with them, right? If you have a sibling or a child who is struggling financially, you're in that with them, right? But then there's the cases where you, you don't have to be in it. Your neighbor, your fellow citizen is in struggle. How much of their struggle do we make our own? Um, speaking of struggle, it seemed to me that women who give birth are the prime example of going through tons of struggle, but the end result is worth it. It's, it's good struggle conversely from bad struggle where you get nothing for your struggles. Great, Eileen, thank you for that. So that brings us back to early Genesis because it says in Bereshit early on that when they leave Gan Eden, that the man will be plagued, cursed with work and the woman will be cursed with labor. Now, I actually don't read that as a curse. I'm not the first to, to say that, but I don't read this as a plague or a curse of exile from the Garden of Eden, but actually a blessing and an inevitability of the maturation of the human that they will need to immerse emerge from paradise into the real world. And all of us know that work can be deeply meaningful even when it's hard. And that labor can be deeply meaningful even when it's beyond hard. The nausea, the pain of childbirth. Now for some women they say, oh, I would never go through that again. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. Others, they say it was the, one of the most deeply meaningful experiences of my life to have, to have my child so close to me within me. I felt so in touch with the fetus. With, 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 and, um, and same with work. There's people who they count every day until retirement. They can't wait to be out of the working world. And others, they retire and they miss every day of their work. And so that notion of leaving the Garden of Eden, leaving paradise into the world of struggle, for some it's a curse and for others it's a blessing. Yes, Lauren. Yeah. Um, what I really love about Judaism is it's a religion that's not an ascetic religion. You know, some of the others are so like, like evangelical Christianity seems like it's all about being mean and forcing things on other people. Maybe I'm taking a bad view, but um, you know, we, we can have wine and enjoy it. Before we came on, Eileen was talking about the beauty of her, her roses. Um, boy, I wish we could have some up here this time of year, but it's, it's, um, that, you know, and we're meant to enjoy the beauty that Hashem gave us. On the other hand, sometimes life is a struggle. And, you know, we, we are not as Jews allowed to stand by while other people are being hurt, being um, demeaned, you know? So I love the balance within Judaism. And, um, 
Yeah, it's not all about struggle and it's not definitely not about hedonism, but it is, as, as Eileen and Michael said, about the middle ground. Great, Lauren, thank you for that. Now, on the one hand, I wanna remind us that the Jewish people get our name from struggle. We all know this. We move from Yaakov to Yisrael. Why do we get our name Yisrael famously? We all know this because Yaakov wrestles with God and with humanity. And in that wrestling becomes named Yisrael. We are called Jews. We are called Yisrael because of our commitment to wrestling, our commitment to struggle. Now, that might sound, again, rom romantic or, um, uh, or pleasurable, but it's actually really hard. We are countercultural. We're countercultural not only because anti-Semites remind us every week that we don't fit into the world naturally, but we're countercultural also because our job is never to assimilate into the norms of the day, but to always push back against status quo, to protest but, but, the but, world. But Rabbi, isn't many, haven't most people in, in most cultures gone through periods of this type of struggle? Isn't that an inherent part of the human experience and journey? Um, I don't know. I don't know that it is. Um, I, I, it's a great question that Michael raises. Is this unique to us or not? I actually think that on an individualistic level, um, there's no doubt struggle is built into the human into the human narrative uh, and the human psyche. Um, but I think on the collectivist level, if you look at human history around majorities, majority um, majority Christian nations, majority Muslim nations. Major, uh, you know, um, obviously India with, with Hinduism, and then there's Buddhist nations. I think that, um, that no one plays the, oh, no, I shouldn't say no one, few play the role of the Jew in the world um, of living as the perpetual minority in an unsafe world. Now, that's only in the negative and in, in the positive front as well. I don't know many religions either that constantly reaffirm the struggle as a goal in itself. Um, I think many religions, I think Marx was right. Religion for most people is an opiate for the masses. That religion really does tell us you have the truth. You should feel good that you're in the camp of the true and the good. Now go convert people to your true and good. You should feel good. You've made it. You've made it. And Jews, we are, right? We know we haven't made it. We don't know anything, right? We don't know anything. We're trying to figure it out. We're struggling for the good. We're struggling for the true. We can't feel good like we've made it. We're constantly in that, in that struggle. Um, also, we are told that we're not just craving the next world. The other, many other religions say, oh, don't worry about this world so much. It's really about the next world. They say, no, no, you need to struggle to repair this world. Don't put yourself in the peace of the soul that you're gonna be in the next world. Put yourself in the discomfort of this broken world. Never evade, that you can never evade that reality. And so, I, 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 so I, I, I appreciate that question. And, and while I want to affirm the values of other religions, I really think this is a unique Jewish contribution, a, a unique Jewish contribution that we should be uncomfortable in our own skin, uncomfortable in this world in a way that shouldn't be uh, overbearing, but that should awaken us to some degree. Cheryl. Um, don't you think that part of who we are is to struggle to repair, which, which was your original poll, the initial poll. I mean, some of our joy comes from helping others. So it's really a combination. I mean, you're, you know, you feel, I mean, maybe a complete person is someone who struggles to help those who are in need, but also can enjoy 
what they have. So it's really a combination. I mean, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, which I think most people have said, but um, I just feel that part of DNA is to help those who are struggling. And so when you, when you face that struggle, that that has, you know, that's, that might give you a satisfaction and a joy that you're helping someone else and bring you some sort of inner peace. Great, great. So Cheryl offers us the gift of rethinking, um, rethinking our expectation. If my expectation in life is I'm going to have this perfect life. Every time I hit a bump in my day, I say, oh, oh man, this is horrible. I just got rear-ended. I just, I, I got to call my insurance company. I've got this new health problem. Everything is like, oh, you know, I thought problems were for other people, not for me. But if I go into my day saying problems are built into this, and my spiritual orientation is to not be pulled underwater by the problems, but to surf upon them, to surf upon them rather than be pulled underwater. That's an interesting opportunity. When Moshe stands before Pharaoh, when Moshe approaches Pharaoh, it doesn't say he's trembling. He's not like, oh, geez, I wish I could go, go back to my meditation. Now I got to be in the struggle. I'm really uncomfortable. He goes with menuchat nefesh. He goes with spiritual equanimity, where his meaning in life, his joy in life is intertwined with the struggle. When I recently stood next to Reverend William Barber here in, in Phoenix, and I watched him as he moved so slowly with his cane, taking baby steps towards his civil disobedience. I watched him as he was literally, uh, uh, you know, inches from, from my hand as he walked and I watched his eyes. This wasn't a person who was afraid of being handcuffed again, fighting for voting rights and for, um, and for civil rights. This wasn't a person who was terrified of, of the police or of the ticket he would get or of, of the disruption of his day. This was a person who was fulfilled in his meaning of life, understand that he was focused like a laser beam on what he was here to do on the earth. And he wasn't in an unjoyful moment of struggle waiting to get home to his lemonade in his, in, on his couch. He was a person who his struggle was interconnected with his joy and with his meaning. And that's ultimately our opportunity is how to um, not have meditation and then unjoyful time, vacation and then horrible work, as if we're just yearning to get off of the workday, but rather to in, infuse, as Cheryl said so powerfully, to infuse meaning and joy into those struggles. And when we do that, we can expand our circle of compassion. We can hold more people's struggle together because we can sustain it, right? If there's no joy in it, it's like we hold a Dixie cup. And that Dixie cup is overflowing when you pour just a little water into it. I can't fit anything else into the cup, that's it. But when I have a bigger soul, I can actually hold the empathy of other people's struggles and my own. You can keep pouring in there and it's not gonna overflow because I can hold it. And that's godly because what it means to be God, I don't know what it means to be God, but one idea of what it might be to be God is to hold everything together. In fact, one interpretation of tikkun olam is not repair the world, but to hold the world. It comes from Rav Sadia Goen's Sidur, when he says tikkun comes from, from the word to hold together, to hold the world. So actually what it means to repair the world is not just to hit, chip away at it, to fix it, but actually to be in a space where we have a capacity to hold, hold all of this together. I yes, hi. Um, um, so I think I'm maybe thinking about this a little bit differently and I wanna hear what people think. Um, but if, if the question is, what is the cent like centrality of um, of Judaism or or of life? Um, is it like, are we asking 
for the individual. Do I want to be a person who feels peace or do I want to be a person who struggles? Or are we thinking, do I want a world in which people are feeling peace and happiness? Or do I want a world in which people are struggling? And I feel like, you know, and when we think about Olam Haba, like I, I perceive that as a world where everyone has happiness and the struggling is to the end, like any struggle we do today in this world is to the end of a world in which people are happy. So like the, the end goal is happiness, peace, um, and struggle is just a means to that. But I imagine in, you know, Olam Haba, and if a world were perfect, we wouldn't want people to be struggling. We would want everyone, I think we would want that to be done with. We would want people to be peaceful, people to have food, all, all conflict, all the injustice to be done. Um, so I wonder how, um, how we think about like individual current needs versus like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just wondering what people think about that. Awesome. I would love if folks want to respond to Julia. It's such a great invitation. Do you view what you want differently than what you want for others? Eileen, did you unmute yourself? Yeah. Um, and your question is different than what I understand Julia's to be. Uh, However, let's go back. You said if in the beginning, if you were laid out on a table and in artificial intelligence, and everything was good. And I would say that we as humans are imperfect. So therefore, we do have a certain amount of struggle. It's not the struggle per se, it's how we react to it. It's how we let the struggle change us and improve us, which I think is the ultimate goal. Great, great. Yeah, um, so thank you for that. I know there's a number of things, just before we get to Michael, a number of things we're kind of juggling at the moment. And I saw this JPEG yesterday, which I can't, I can't quote at the moment, but I thought it was really powerful. And it was putting down the phrase, putting down the phrase, what won't kill you makes you stronger. And it said, well, what do you mean? Actually, a whole bunch of things can hurt you long-term, right? It can give you trauma. It can, it, you know, so where, where did we, how did we start glorifying trauma to say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Actually, a whole bunch of things that don't kill you can hurt you in irreparable ways, right? And so on the one hand, go, you know, going back to what Julia was sharing there, like I, when I think of this as a parent, I, 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 I admit that I, um, I am part of the problem where I want my children to have no struggle. I, well, I embrace struggle for myself, I want to protect them from everything. My wife recently said, why do you still carry around our five-year-old daughter? I said, because she asks me to. Everywhere we go, she says, carry me. She said, well, she knows how to walk. You know, she, she's got to learn how to walk. And do I said, no, I, I want to make their lives as easy as possible. I, I'm plagued with that idea of like, just wanting to shelter them, you know? And so, um, and so uh, I, 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 while I know philosophically uh, children, will need to experience pain and suffering. And that is a part of their growth. For myself, I may embrace that, but for others, I, I, I wanna protect them. And Julia, uh, it, Julia's right. I think when I think, when I think eschatologically of a messianic era or of a heavenly era, I think of people who are sick or poor or, or in war to be free from such strife. That's the world we're working for. So when I say struggle is meaningful for me, what, is it, what does that ultimately mean? about how I then interpret it towards, towards others. Just before Michael, to go back to Eileen's point about the, about the table, we are entering, uh, according to Mark Zuckerberg and everyone else uh, who is interested in this virtual reality world, we are entering 
um, what's the new name of the company again? Meta, M-E-T-A. Meta, Meta. Meta. We are entering the metaverse where there are people who truly want to live within an alternative reality. And that will be many attractive to, that, that will be very attractive to many people who really find, um, you know, people, and I'm not blaming anyone, but those who enter the opioid crisis for various reasons, those who are heavy consumers of substances, those who um, find their happiness in Netflix, nothing against Netflix, but essentially those whose happiness is mostly in a state where they don't have to think about real life. I wanna just be in the movie. I wanna be in the book. I wanna be in virtual reality. I don't wanna be in the real world, right? And there are more and more people craving that experience. And yet I, I, I really believe that what makes this life valuable is being immersed in this life in its fullness, in its fullness. Yes, Michael. I, I think in a discussion and looking at, we need to remember also that humans, individual and on the group level are very complex. And we look at, 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 at these concepts among many other concepts that, that we need to be a little careful of simple answers. And really we're looking at tendencies because there's so many different factors. How do we feel at 10 versus 25 versus 75? You know, it's just very complex. And we have to understand that as we try and find our place again, individually in group and, and how we respond and where we want to impact and, and, and hopefully see it move forward. Great, great, thank you for that. You know, it's also, if, if you've read any of the self-help self literature around motivation, one of the things they often talk about is that there is only so much capacity for the human in all of our complexity to embrace struggle in our lives. And we have to be very selective of where we choose it because choosing it in one area may diminish it in another that there's only so much tension or challenge we could take. If my goal right now is to lose 30 pounds, then be a little more gentle with myself in other dimensions of challenge. If my goal is up, oh, it's not really about the exercise right now. I'm looking to really challenge myself in how I offer service in the world and to go beyond my comfort zone. Be a little more gentle on, on you know, that piece of cake late at night, so to speak, right? Because we can only handle so much if the whole thing collapses. And so Michael's right. We Humans are not complicated because that implies a unidimensional or complex, which, which implies an interconnected systemic dimension of our complexity, according to you know, complex systems theories. And so um, that means we're not predictable. Yes, Eddie. Yeah, thank you so much, Rabbi, uh, for, for an amazing class and thought-provoking uh, material here. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in what you're saying, especially when you're bringing up the, the metaverse and stuff. Um, it actually drives from the main concept of the movie, The Matrix, where uh, humans actually uh, prefer to stay in a virtual reality rather than suffer the, the reality of, of a crumbling world and society where the main uh, protagonist is trying to get people to, to, to see them. And it's, it's the whole concept of the pill, uh, of to, to understand the idea that this is actually is not the real reality. And uh, as we zoom forward, I'm seeing that there's a, a shift in our society where we're focusing more on absolutism, where we're looking at like, we absolutely either have to be like in dire struggle and like everything is caving in or everything is 100% happy and that we should just smile. And like, I think of it as like both like toxic traits, right? Like there's a toxic positivity. Like if my parent just died, like you can't just tell me to smile it off and it'll be okay. 
um, how do you propose we move into a society where we start to actually embrace both of those things, where we continuously embrace both of those things in a society that's pushing us to be absolutist about either one or the other? I love it. I love it. What a, what a great, what a great contribution, Eddie. Thank you for that. And to take a step back, I think the most common hiding from reality is what we would call ideology. What ideology does is it says, I don't actually have to read the newspaper. I don't actually have to think critically. I don't have to think any differently than I thought 10 years ago. I have an ideology I can impose upon all data as it emerges, right? And basically nothing will change that lens that I impose upon the world. It's another form of hiding from the world of virtual reality. Everything fits into that ideology. Um, and I think that's also true of the self, of a narrative, of who I am, my self-identity. Everything flows. I am the victim always, or I am the, um, the giver always. There's, there's this unidimensional self-identity of a narrative that we've constructed for ourselves that can never shake by the moment. And so how do we come out of that? <clears throat> I actually think, going to Eddie's point, <clears throat> that Jewish ritual is actually the, um, the answer in, in its intention. Jewish ritual, I think, is about ensuring every day we hold the complexity of the fullness of emotional life, right? That we say things and do things that remind us of the darkness of our world, the trauma, the brutality, the oppression, the injustice, the hate of really never forgetting that a Holocaust happened just decades ago in this world. Like, and never turning away from the suffering that is happening at every moment. And rituals that constantly refocus on the beauty and the gratitude and the positive and the light and to hold that light and darkness next to each other. The most obvious example is at the last ritual of the wedding, we're under the chuppah celebrating wedding. And then we break a glass to remind ourselves of the darkness. And so too, I think Eddie's right. There's people who have this toxic, this toxic positivity. Everything is happiness, just smile. Everything is all good always in a way that they, they can't really see life and people can't sit with them in their own sorrow. And other people that are just so doom and gloom about literally everything um, and only want people around them that also interpret the re reality around us. And I think Jews, our resiliency, our perseverance over millennia, that is precisely connected to our, our ability to hold both, to hold the optimism for the future of what will be, the faith and the hope of tomorrow, and yet never forget our past, not only our, 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 our people's past, but our, the, the, the past of all of humanity and where, we have, where we've ultimately come from. We, we really, none of us really want struggle, as you've said. But when struggle appears, to, I believe it's, it's a motivational force for us to learn and for us to open the capacity that we have for empathy and to, to create a, a, a path where we little by little create within us the, the power to overcome things that are not pleasant and that are not um, creative and that are not that do not contribute to our happiness and it's 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 a tool and I I keep thinking about my 
some of my high school reunions where the people who had slippery, smooth, fragrant, fabulous lives, never a struggle. And they are talking about the same things they talked about in high school. And they are looking at the world through the same lens that they, that they looked through in high school. They haven't grown at all. And so every time I think about that, I, even though I'm not happy about the, any of the struggles that I've had, I'm grateful that it gave me the opportunity to grow and to, and to learn and, and also to, to honor the, the, um, the, the fact that as Jews, we are responsible for, that, for the happiness and the, and the health and, and the, the welfare of our fellow human beings. It, it becomes something that, that's not trivial. It's very meaningful. And if I was as young as I used to be, I would still be doing those things. It, it is just, it's just not, it's not an accident that we run into to problems. It's, it's an opportunity. Beautiful, beautiful. So we're, we're yes, and then, um, and then I see Steve's hand up and I wasn't sure if Gary was gonna jump in there after Barbara as well. Um, but I, I love what you said that I think, and I see Eric also, that, that we're not engaged in theodicy to why, to why evil things are good. Why, why bad things are actually good. But the Talmud says, now that it's happened, let it be for good, right? Not that it was, not that the bad thing was good, but now that it's happened, let it be for good. And as Barbara's saying, like the growth experiences that emerge from that and people who haven't had that. I look at my own story and my parents getting divorced at 17 or 18 years old for me in a way that totally shook me. It totally shook me in every way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I hated it and I didn't want it. And it was a few months before I was, I was out the door and yet it totally, it totally changed my narrative in amazing ways in a search I had to go through for community, for truth and who I was going to be in the world. And I could point to other experiences like that. And all of us can really of things that really shook our foundation in a way that we would never wish to experience again. Um, and yet it fundamentally benefited. Uh, the direction we're going to. Now, one of my theologies on why nightmares are such a gift is what a nightmare is, going to Barbara's point about empathy, what a nightmare is, is it's a window into empathy um, for, for experiencing what someone else is experiencing without actually having to experience it. And so I wake up and I say, whoa, now I know what it's like for someone else going through that experience. I'm glad I didn't actually have to go through it, but I went through it enough in my psyche that I have a new empathy for someone else. So the, the divine gift of nightmares helps us to cultivate empathy for, for things we've never actually physically experienced. And what a gift, as opposed to just saying, phew, I'm glad that's done. What a gift to, to leverage that nightmare towards toward service. Yes, Steve. Actually, I was raising my hand in affirmation and confirmation of what Barbara said. I thought it was just fantastic. It was sort of like a salute to Barbara. Um, I. I also uh, wondered about something you said earlier, and I might have misconstrued it. Um, you said the tension between Torah and conscience, and I didn't quite know what that meant. And uh, I will give you a long time to recall that because I know it's hard to remember everything we say. And last but not least, 
absolute mea culpa. I am, how would you say it, toxically positive. <laughs> and I absolutely feel feel bullish about so many things, just having observed so many things in my lifetime and how things have evolved in, in, in ways that have benefited not only me, but others. Um, just just the, the history from when I was born in 1943 um, and, and how many things that we had to confront that looked like end of the world that didn't turn out to be uh, the end of the world. I cannot help but being toxically positive. But just to say that really doesn't mean anything. I feel it. And, and the biggest thing I missed from quarantine for that one year, which was one of the worst times of my life, was people, proximity to people. That's why I play pickleball all the time it's not to smash the ball and it's not just to hear the great smack talk jokes it is the closeness to people that's why i love valley bait midrash yesterday i did not understand a word about the zionist discussion only because i didn't know what zionism meant but i loved being there just just closeness and 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 the way we've per persevered as humans uh, in, in the 79 years I've been alive, make me so optimistic about the future, the end. Beautiful. Steve, I, you are such a beautiful person and I would never um, correct you publicly, but except for this time, that you are not toxically positive. <laughs> you are constructively positive. Toxic positivity means you shut down other people's uh, forms of suffering and sadness with, your, with toxic positivity and you elevate people who are are struggling. It is a very constructive positivity in how you use your optimism, your bullishness um, uh, towards, towards the future. But thank you for your humility as always. To Torah and conscience, it is very easy to embrace religion that it is very easy to embrace religion that silences conscience, that basically submit to, to, to laws or to rules or to norms. Um, and that's, that's true in secular legal society. That's true in religious legal society. And I think the tension of Torah and conscience is a sense of, of how do we make sure we are still alive in our moral intuition and in our responsiveness to the complexity of the human being while also still being rooted in the wisdom of our tradition. For many of us, that's not a tension at all, uh, but it wouldn't be hard to find um, some examples where we would all experience such, such, a, such, uh, such a tension. Um, as it emerges from Judaism in regards in, in relation to our conscience. So, so thank you, Steve, for that. Um, okay, I saw Eric had a hand up, but then I see Lauren and Michael, and we never went back to Gary. We got to go back to Gary too, if he's if he's there with us. No, he's. I'm not sure if he's with, the, with no laughing. You know, he's okay. Or Trisha, I, I can only see part of Trisha. Now, <laughs> okay, Eric, over to you. Thank you so much. This is the kind of conversation one could spend all day uh, going back and forth. This has been very enlightening and everyone has, has had some wonderful things to say. I want to pivot to something that hasn't been said. Uh, we've talked about the extremes of po you know, positive pursuits of too much peace and the other end of too much struggle. But there hasn't been much talk about the, the disadvantage and the, the, the challenges of somewhere in the middle, the moderation between uh, the struggle uh, of, of going through struggle and seek for truth versus the 
finding peace. And I like to get your opinion from, from the group and from, from Rabbi, where do you see the challenges and the, the cons, in a manner of speaking, of looking at where there's only seeking a middle path? Uh, somewhere there is only pursuing a little bit of balance between peace and struggle. Great, great. So um, I love that. Let's take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, <laughs> just because you know, we'll take a very light, easy example, right? <laughs> so the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you look at advocates today, there are those who will take the peace approach and there are those who will take the struggle approach. Um, of course, there's other options as well. There's there's hate approaches. There's there's a whole bunch of other approaches that can emerge as well. And let's take Micha Goodman, Micha Goodman of the Hartman Institute. Micha, Micha Goodman says, stop talking about peace, right? Peace is not attainable. We are so far from peace. Let's talk about reducing the, let's talk about reducing suffering and lowering the temperature. He says, no one is making peace anytime soon but let's just figure out how there can be less suffering, right, in terms of military occupation that's involved, um, you know, in, in, in regards to Palestinian suffering and less suffering from Israelis around terrorist attacks, less, less escalated tensions um, around, around, around economic and political affairs. Let's just figure out how both can live with a little more dignity. It's not gonna solve the problem. The goal is not peace. The goal is to have a sustainable struggle that is not just explosive for everyone. Jews are suffering, Palestinians are suffering. Let's just reduce that a little bit. And then there's others who say, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. We need to be dreamers of peace. We need to fight for a peace solution now. We need to be at the peace tables, at the conversation tables. We need to be drafting new resolutions. We need to push for peace now, right? And I think that's a good example of where... Um, kind of the idealist versus the realist, um, or also understood as kind of a more moderate approach versus a less moderate approach. But I think that where the moderation comes in um, is partially about personality. Some of us here may have very moderate personalities. Um, we find ourselves comfortable in the middle on everything. We like to be political centrists. We like to not eat too much and not eat too, not eat too little. We just, we love the middle ground of everything. It just feels comfortable. Right. Um, other, others of us love the extremes. We love like to jump out of an airplane or to like have adventure sports or to like go out and get drunk one night and then not drink for a month because I drank too much and then go and have five glasses of wine and then not drink for two months. Right. Um, or to go like really risky in the stock market and then pull back and regret and then go. Right. And others of us, we love the safe ground. And so part of it is personality. And how do we challenge our own personality that those of us who love moderation? find ourselves pushing ourselves out of that safe space. And those of us who love the extremes, how do we kind of, you know, find us a little more comfort in the moderate space? And I think this goes back to Julia's point. Are we talking about ourself or others? When it comes to myself, I have the opportunity to make some choices. I think we have less choices when it comes to the other in regards to uh, what we're striving for ultimately for them. And so I don't think moderation is the answer. I think moderation is a answer. Um, I think it's a answer. Um, and for some of us who are radically peace-oriented, we can't be moderate. We have to go all the way for peace or all the way for justice, right? Other people, they're gonna take an incrementalist approach to how we're gonna achieve where we ultimately wanna get. And I understand both and I value both. 
lot more to say there, but Lauren, Lauren, over to you. Okay, funny because I was gonna talk about struggle, including having lived in Israel, um, but thank you for mentioning Nika Goodman. And for anybody who has not read his book or wants, well, he has many books, but the book on um, dealing with, with the conflict, re reducing the conflict, he wrote an article in the Atlantic, Google it, it's wonderful, it's worth reading. So thanks for mentioning him. Too much struggle that leads to trauma where you have no choice. I think we have to realize also to have a lot of compassion because you know it was hard living in Israel and it's a traumatized society. It really is. A lot of my friends had kids in the army and you know they're worried every day what, what, what's gonna happen. Um, I lived in Yerushalayim during the stabbings. I was a wreck. I mean, you know, I, I was so hyper aware you had to be that, you know, I would look at everybody's hands because the terrorists were even like sometimes dressing as Hasidim and then would pull a, a knife out of a, a bag. So, you know, we have to have compassion for that kind of struggle. And I think of my dad, survivor of the Holocaust, and he was just a broken person. He was functional, but he never got out of it. And, and I don't know how we can even ask people or even put ourselves in their place. But, you know, we can't glorify struggle, this struggle to the point, but when it's excessive and it leads to trauma, I, I think we need a lot of compassion. Beautiful, beautiful. I love that. This is a great point place for us to pause today. Um, it's such a wonderful point. And we all know people like this who have had trauma, that trauma makes them self-consumed and I'm not judging them. And some for who trauma makes them radically altruistic and empathetic. And um, that's just, it's the same with aging. Those who in their aging become completely self-consumed in their aging and those who become completely other focused. My, my, my friend and maybe your friend who just passed away this week, Dr. Karl Hammerschlag, um, he, from his, from his hospital bed, was sending me uplifting messages, not talking about his own, uh, his own, his own pain. Or my teacher, Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg in Israel, who has been, who's been ill, but functionally ill and continues to be of service, not wanting to talk of his own, his own challenges. That I think some of our greatest teachers who are, amidst, are immersed in struggle, but immersed in their struggle doesn't become about themselves. It becomes about a new window into how to serve others. Every shul, the Shulchan Aruch says, the Talmud says, every shul needs windows. We need to see outside. The deepest spiritual place is a place where we are not focused only inwards, but we ultimately have windows out into others' lives and into other souls. So I give everyone the bracha and I hope you give it back to me that we can pursue peace and happiness and joy and be optimistic and hopeful. Right and and be so full of meaning in our life is overflowing with the with with the blessings of our lives. We should all live long lives and have good health and so much joy. And at the same time, I, from that place of joy, hold on to the struggles of our own and our family members and our community members and our world, but in a way that's sustainable because it is filled with optimism and hope and love. And I hope we can do that all together. Have a great day. Take Thank care. you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work 
by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.